Do you have a good relationship with your boss? Or maybe you are a boss. I was watching this American TV show called The Office. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And uh, The Office is, well, it's about an office. And there's a boss in the office. He thinks everyone loves him. He bought himself a coffee mug that says, world's best boss. None of the people who worked for him thought of buying him this coffee cup. This is a comedy. Oh, and there was a British version of the same thing. Are you a boss? How, uh, how, how are you as a boss? Well, we all uh, work for somebody, I guess. In uh, the text of Scripture we're coming to this morning, we're coming to a section that's kind of about the world of work. Now, actually, in the book of Ephesians, well, it was written during the Roman age, and the world of work was quite a bit different than it is now in many respects. Some things were similar, but it was really a lot different. And in fact, in the book of Ephesians itself, it's, this isn't really about the world of work, except that it kind of is. It's really about the house. And what we've been doing in the book of Ephesians is we've been applying this principle, submit yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ, to various relationships in the house. So husbands, how do husbands submit themselves to their wives? They love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives submit to their husbands as the church does to Christ. So we have in the marriage relationship a demonstration of love that is a demonstration of this relationship of provision and trust that we have between Christ and the church. I mean, Christ, yeah, Christ and the church. I did that backwards. Yeah. And then we had a discussion of children. Obey your parents. This is in the household. Our children to submit to their parents. Well, in obedience. Oh, and honor. So children are called upon to obey their parents and to honor their parents. And then we had a discussion of how parents, maybe especially fathers, are supposed to relate to their children. How do fathers submit themselves to their children? Well, they bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, in the Lord's instruction. We didn't really dwell on this a lot last time, but we could have. That means that it is the duty of parents to 
teach your children the Word of God, well, anyway, so parents are not supposed to be sources of anger in the lives of their children or, or unnecessary frustration. You're not supposed to discourage your children. You're supposed to encourage your children and bring them up in the Lord. And in this way, fathers submit to their children. In other words, they put their children's needs above their needs, especially their need of stuff like comfort. Who's serving who between children and fathers? Fathers are called upon to serve their children in this very way. And children, of course, obey their parents, which will include some serving, I guess. You know, what's going on in the body of Christ in the instructions of the book of Ephesians is a big serving contest. And everybody, not everybody serves the same way, but everybody serves. And if I read that instruction, submit to one another in the fear of Christ, that means serve, that means I look at myself as here for your benefit. And everybody does that. Everybody does that. And everybody has a way of doing that. And if you study the whole concept of the body of Christ in the New Testament, you'll find out that everybody has been gifted by God for that purpose. And everybody has been given a spot in the church, in the body, for that purpose, for the service of the others. We just read about this earlier in the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, where every part does its part. And we read in 1 Corinthians that God places each of us in the body according to what he wants. So when he brought you here, he was giving something to us. Oh, and that's true of all of us, so the us is here for you as well. It's a big serving contest. Now, I was talking about how this text is about the household, and in the household in Ephesus, in the time of the writing of this letter, the household included slaves. And slaves had a very interesting and complicated status in this society. They were definitely thought of as less than. As a class of people, a slave was not the same, it didn't have the same kind of status as a free person, no matter how poor that free person might be. But people would enter into slavery voluntarily in order to survive. 
because there was a mutual understanding in the society. And there was an expectation for the people who had slaves to take care of them, to take good care of them. One of the ways you could become really disrespected in this society at this time was to be the sort of person who had a reputation for mistreating his servants. Anyway, this is just a part of the society and the culture. This is how things got done. The other thing about slaves in the household was there was an expectation that they were kind of part of the family. And I admit, this is all a little bit confusing in the modern mindset. How can, that, how can this work? And I guess I think from a biblical point of view, ultimately, it doesn't work for one person to own another person. And one of the reasons it doesn't work in the biblical mindset is this text we're reading this morning. And what it says about this relationship. And how even though it takes this relationship as given in the culture, just like we would take the expression of worker and employer as given in the culture, in this culture, slave and master is a given, and the text takes it that way. It definitely subverts that arrangement in these instructions to the Christian household. And if, if you pay attention to what we just read from the book of Philemon, that text was the principal text employed by abolitionists in the 19th century in their eventually successful attempt to illegalize the whole practice of slavery. So, let's look at it. Paul calls slaves, in this case, to obey their masters. not just because masters are to be obeyed. He gives a very special reason and purpose. Oh, and like we noticed with children, we might notice here also, Paul assumes that the slave has a choice in the matter. Paul is addressing the slave directly with respect. We might take this advice ourselves, even though I guess none of us would consider ourselves to be slaves. We're not owned by each other anymore. So how does this apply to us? Well, this might be good guidance. I think it is good guidance for how to work for somebody. How do you work for someone? How do you engage as, a, as an employee?
Well, here's the advice. Paul says, slaves, obey your masters. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Who's the employer now? Masters do the same. Do the same for your slaves. You know that is really kind of confusing. We're going to have to figure that out. How how does that work? Slaves are called upon to relate to their masters in a particular way, and then this says masters do the same. How does that not just undo the whole arrangement? Well, maybe it ultimately does. But anyway, do the same and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no impartiality with him. I'm sorry, no partiality with him. In the sight of God, you look just as much like a slave as your slave. So, I think the key expression in this commandment to obey your masters, and we might take this as obey your employer, though that is really a fundamentally different relationship. Obey your masters as you would Christ. And here is where we might stop and remember that this is only another case in which the whole body of Christ is called upon to submit to one another in the fear of Christ. So this is just one more thing. Oh, so if you're a slave, how will you do this? Well, obey your master. And this is something you are called upon to do voluntarily. There are certain aspects of this description here that if the slave doesn't decide to do it, they won't be done that way. It won't be done that way. He, you know, he has probably some sort of legal obligation and he might even have the threat of even his life if he disobeys in certain ways. But he doesn't have to do it not with eye service. He doesn't have to do it with a sincere heart to be obedient to the rules of the society. He just has to do what they tell him. He can do that in the most cold-hearted fashion. He is not called upon to like the society. He isn't calling upon him to especially like his master. 
But the gospel is calling upon him to love his master. Another human being in Christ. The question is sort of like this. What if it were Jesus you were working for? Now you can think about this in your own life with your own boss, who is definitely not Jesus. Your boss does not care for you like Christ does. But obey your boss as you would Christ. What, imagine this. What if it were Jesus you were working for in this situation? How would you conduct yourself in your job if Jesus was your boss? That's the meaning of this expression, as you would Christ. So if you were living in the times of Paul and you found yourself enslaved, you were called upon to work for your employer, as you would Christ. Does that trouble you? Because it kind of troubles me. How is that good? Well, he says you are to do so with fear and trembling. Does that mean you're supposed to be afraid of your boss? No, it does not. It does not. Who is this fear and trembling directed toward? Not your master. As you would Christ. Because as you recall, if we go back to chapter 5 and verse 21, we are submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Why am I called upon to submit to you and you to me and every one of us to every other one of us? What is the foundation of that calling? It is not the fear of you. It's the fear of Christ. It is the profound recognition of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Which is a fear <laughs> that is in awe of the greatness of His goodness. It's kind of odd to apply the word fear to this. It is to confront the amazing magnitude of the waterfall of God's goodness and grace to us in Christ and to be so stunned by that that I will submit myself to you in, the, in that great reverent respect which is so Deep, you can call it fear. Phobos is the word. With fear and trembling. And this fear and trembling is in relation to Christ. So if you are called upon to obey your employer as you go about your work, you are called upon to obey your employer, not because you're afraid of your employer, but because you are dumbfounded by God's grace in Christ. You are struck down by the amazing nature of His grace. You 
operate as you do in relation to your employer, even in this case, a slave in relation to his master from a heart of worship. In the light of the magnitude of God's mercy, you become available. The second expression here, as you would Christ, the second expression is with a sincere heart. And in the society of ancient Rome in this day, there was this sort of expectation of loyalty, like this is almost almost a family relationship you have with your slave. Your slave is, <laughs> I know this is really crass and I apologize, but your slave is sort of between your children and your pets. I know. It's very belittling to a person. It's, it's not honoring to the person. But there is still an expectation of this kind of loyalty and love. And Paul is saying to the slave in that relationship, obey with a sincere heart, with actual loyalty. And I think to myself, how could anyone ever do that? They are belittled in this relationship. Their, their full status of as, as a human being, is not being respected or recognized. How will they do this? I think only mindful of how Christ was respected and recognized. Only from that same heart of worship. And what this means, if you're actually going to do it, say you're going to do it in your relationship with your employer today, what this means is you act for the simple benefit of the other person. Sincerely. You make it your personal objective to be of some benefit to another person. And of course, if we're talking about the mutual submission we are called to exercise in the body of Christ all the time for everyone it's that exact same thing. I am called upon to act for your benefit. That means I need to actually think about what would actually benefit you. I don't want to do things that maybe that you would like, but that aren't good for you. I, wouldn't, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think it's acting for the benefit of your children to feed them candy and ice cream all the time. They might like it for a while. So it's, it's an actual real consideration. A sincere heart is true, lo truly loyal. It's for the simple benefit. It's with the other person's interests actually in mind. It says, what would the guy want? It thinks about that even when he's not here to say what it is. That is a... To, in our modern sensibility, that is really hard to figure expecting that from a slave. And I think what this does is it helps us appreciate what 
the transcendent nature of our fellowship with Christ is like. That it sort of supersedes all these human relationships. Even these relationships where a person might be belittled. And then he says, as you would Christ, not with eye service, not as people pleasers, not minimizing the work to save yourself trouble, not just when people are looking, <laughs> and not as people pleasers, not polishing and politicking your boss. If you want to work for someone as a Christian, then what does all this call upon you to do? Well, it calls upon you to live in your work life with your consciousness of God's grace in the back of your mind at all times. With the generosity of God toward you, with the security that you have in Christ in mind at all times in, with fear and trembling. And it calls upon you to sincerely serve that is what will actually benefit the people i'm working for and to have sort of a singular mind about that and not to not just when people are watching but for real and it means you're not always dressing up your work for the boss How are you going to do that? Slaves, obey your masters as you would Christ. That's how. And he says, not with thy service, not as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. So now he's really getting down to it. He's saying, not, you are not to work for your boss just as if your boss were Christ. But because Christ is actually your boss. Who is Lord? <laughs> Who is Lord? Jesus is Lord. You know that's the same word. The same word that is the name of Jesus in most of the New Testament, the Lord, as to the Lord is this, in this text. The Lord, Jesus says, uh, you're right to think of me as your teacher and Lord. Same word. And it is the person who has the master relationship in a master and slave relationship. And so he says, it's not just as if your boss were Christ, but because your real boss is Christ. As slaves of Christ, because you are, in fact, actually working for Jesus. When you go to work at your office... You're working for this guy, but you're also working for that guy. And your employment in the 
service of Christ is, of course, a much bigger deal than your employment in the service of this guy. And so he says, doing the will of God. Oh, so we're not just doing the will of our earthly master now. We're doing the will of God. From the heart. Does this all sound really impossible to you yet? From the heart. And literally the word here is soul. From soul. <laughs> With your soul. Your soul is your, the, your kind of your seat of decision making. I read this as sort of in the exercise of your own free will. You do the will of God, and you do the will of God by obeying your master. Not because he's making you, but because you decide to. And sometimes, you know, when somebody's making you do something, it is much harder to decide that's what you want to do. That's what's called upon, called for here, doing the will of the God from the heart, from your own soul, from your own free will. We do God's will because we want to. You know, there's a tendency among Christians to anticipate that God's will will be trouble. Am I right? There's this anticipation in the body of Christ that if God wants you to do something, it's going to be a pain. And there very well could be pain involved. I mean, God's will for Jesus was to die on the cross for our sins. That involved some pain. But Jesus did it because Jesus decided to do it. He exercised his own free will. He obeyed from the heart. Because here's what the Scripture says about God's will. It is good. It is good. It is good. That means it will benefit people. It will be beneficial. God's will is good. God's will is pleasing. This is all from Romans chapter 12, by the way. God's will is described with these three things. Good, pleasing. Pleasing. That is, ultimately, if you decide for what God wants, this will bring the greatest satisfaction to you and to everyone else concerned. It is the way to maximize satisfaction. It is pleasing. And now it might involve a sacrifice, but the scripture says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus knew that the cross was the path to greatest satisfaction in the end. And so he engaged in this sacrifice willingly, and, of course, it was good. It benefited him and us. The third thing about the will of God is it's perfect. 
It's good, pleasing, and perfect. That means it doesn't leave anything out. God didn't forget something when he was making up his mind about what he would want. In fact, it's a little bit goofy to talk about God making up his mind. Because his mind is complete and perfect at all times. Always knows everything that is or could be or will be or might be. His knowledge is comprehensive. Everything he does is in full consideration of everything. All of his determinations are good and pleasing and perfect. That is, they don't leave anything out. And so I do God's will. If I know what it is, I know it is best and that I would be foolish to do anything else. Doing the will of God from the heart from my own free will. What God is doing for us in our discipleship with Jesus is He is bringing us back through our loving fellowship with Him in Christ and by His Spirit. He is bringing our desires back to to wise. The desire for sin is the stupidest, most foolish thing possible. And we are caught up in that, and He is bringing us, restoring us out of that back to wise, back to what's good and pleasing and perfect, His will. And so in our obedience to the people we work for, we are doing His will because His will is a good idea. And we do so with a sincere heart, meaning we know it's a good idea and we want it too. Sometimes that even means obeying obeying my boss when my boss is kind of dumb. And he doesn't know what ought to be. Well, sometimes I'm called upon to exercise not eye service, not just what he wants, not simply what he wants, but what would be good, that might get me in trouble. I'm called upon in this whole arrangement to steward that whole problem, to weigh stuff, to think about it, to live as wise. But I think when I am uh, serving the people I work for well, there's a tendency for them to allow some latitude in that service. Well, I'm doing this as a slave to Christ. I recognize that I'm really working for him. I'm working for this guy, but I'm really working for him. Serving with good will. I operate as a slave of Christ, serving with good will. I serve Christ for the love of Christ. Because He has loved me so well, I love Him, and so I serve Him. And we serve our employer to express that love of Christ. That's what's called upon. Called, that's what we're called upon to do here. So, you see, as I'm serving, as I'm serving... I'm preaching. That does not mean go to work and preach to your boss. 
That means let your service preach. Let the love of Christ show in your relation to everyone and in this important relationship to this person or people you work for. You do that by serving them well. And then again, he says, as to the Lord and not to men. Now he's moved an even further step. (laughs) He started, well, obey your boss. Really? Really obey? As if he were Christ. And then it says, oh, because Christ really is your boss. And now he says, as to Christ and not your boss. The Lord that matters is the Lord. And so, who are you working for? Even while you're working for this guy, this guy might be an idiot. Your real boss is not. And so you might ask your real boss, if it bothers you, you should ask him. You might ask your real boss, why did you give me such a clown to work for? This brings us back to that principle we learned from the book of James. If you've got a problem with somebody, you should talk to God before you get mad at that guy. You should ask God why he's put this in your life. Talk to the real boss. Knowing, it says here, that God gives good for good without regard to status. You see, this master and slave relationship that happened in the context of the book of Ephesians and this employer-employee relationship that happens in our context You know, God doesn't give much credit for cultural status. The Bible says repeatedly he is not a respecter of persons, which means however good you are, however smart you are, however clever you are, however athletically skilled you are, Whatever there is about you that all the rest of us might admire, God's not impressed. There's nothing about us that particularly impresses God. There's one thing. There's one thing. One thing. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the glory of God as it might be reflected in you in Christ. That he's concerned about. And if I ask, well, how do I do that at work? How would that happen at work? The answer is, I, I excel in my work for the benefit of the people I work for. I serve their interests. I show the love, the even self-sacrificing love of Christ in my work. Now, I can hear it, but you don't know my boss. 
Well, I will, I will admit, I'll admit it. I don't know your boss. Maybe I, I, I probably don't know your boss. Here's something I do know about everyone's boss. They are definitely not worthy of this level of service. They don't deserve it. No question about it. If you are serving your boss because your boss is worth it, you would never get this far. Not for one second. You would never say, oh, my boss is worthy of this. No, he isn't. She's not that good. Not a single employer, not a single master, if we were talking in the days of Paul, not a single one of those people is worthy of this level of service who is only Christ. Your boss is not the guy you're working for. If your boss is the only one you're working for, you'll you'll never be moved to this level. As we think about our daily lives, the society we live in imposes a certain structure of things upon us. We don't have any choice about that. We have an arrangement in a modern culture where I now have the benefit of freely exchanging my labor for wages. So I'm not a slave. That is a giant leap ahead in this economy compared to what Paul was dealing with in his day. That is a huge thing. Nevertheless, if I want to live as a Christian then I am employing this principle of submission all the time with everyone I know. I want to be an exhibit of the very nature of the love of God in Christ. And that means I will think of your needs as well as mine, and perhaps even put your needs above mine when I am deciding what to do. That I will serve you And this extends to the workplace. And it extends to every relationship within the household, if there's a relationship within the household. It extended from husbands to wives, from wives to husbands, from children to parents, from parents to children, from employees to employers. And we're going to stop here, but when we talk about this next week, we're going to talk about what Paul says to lords, Do the same. How? What does that even mean? I think you can only make sense out of that. Do the same. Masters, you too, he says. The only way you can make sense of that is something like this. What if it was Jesus working for you? 
And so if you are a person that other people work for, then the question is, what if it was Jesus working for you? You know, Jesus did work. He was a carpenter for a long time before he became, you know, Messiah. What if it was Jesus working for you? And I think that gives us some really good insight into what it means do the same. Do the same. How do you relate to the people around you? And the big commandment at the top of this whole list is we submit to one another in the fear of Christ. So when you go to work and your boss is a jerk, you've, all you need to do, I'm gonna, this is real simple, <laughs> all you need to do is remember who you're really working for. Who you're really working for. And now you can work for this boss while working for this boss. And it makes all the difference. And you can become a beacon, a light in your workplace for the gospel. Father, thank you for your love for us, for this care you show for us in Christ that he has served us that this gospel turns these relationships upside down Lord it's a challenge to us to serve to seek to serve to serve on purpose and not to try to be served. But Lord, we want to be reflections of your goodness and your grace. Pray for everyone here in, in their workplace or in their school or wherever, whatever relationship they have, that we would take these opportunities to serve, to serve as slaves of Christ, as to the Lord, and not to men. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.